and then it just like the music just kept coming out and now that's all I do it's like it's almost like a reversal a complete reversal before I was more practicing and getting you know uh, excelling trying to get the music trying to perfect you know and interpret music and then I think that moment in my life you know it was it was extremely difficult for me uh, it just was the exchange. It just changed it over. Now, now you don't have to play music. You, you have to create your music, and so, so that, which I think is kind of unusual because I didn't hear any music before that. There was no music in me before that, and now there's only music, and there's too much music, and I can't get it out in time. So it just feels like something happened there. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman, which is available wherever you get your podcasts, as a video on YouTube, and the transcript and show notes are all linked in the description to my website, leahroseman.com. Margaret Maria is a wonderful cellist who's a unique composer. Her compositions are all written by layering cello lines in some gorgeous and emotive oral tapestries. Her personal story is interesting and moving. She started the cello as a teenager, was admitted to the University of Toronto at age 16 without graduating from high school, and was then admitted to the prestigious Curtis Institute. She went on to have a successful career as a member of the Vancouver Symphony and then Canada's National Arts Centre Orchestra, which is how I came to know her. She gave up her job with the NAC after a few years and embarked on a new life as a composer, meanwhile continuing to teach. Some of her work as an educator has been with the Orchidstra program, which she has been involved with since its inception in 2007. It's a social development program that serves over 650 youth from over 62 linguistic and cultural backgrounds by building community through free music programs. Finally, before we get into this conversation, I am an independent podcaster, and in order to keep the series going, I need my listeners' help. So please look for the link to my Ko-fi page in the description. Hi, Margaret. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I was trying to think of where to start. And of course, before we start this part of the interview, people will have heard an intro and know who you are and where you're coming from. But I was thinking, you know, as a cellist and composer and educator, maybe your experience in Breno, Italy, it kind of tied all those things together that you did this summer. Did you want to start talking about that project? Yes, so um, I started my very first creativity and improv retreat with a focus on composition um, just this a few weeks ago in Breno, Italy. And this has been something I've been kind of dreaming of. Uh, Megan McPhee, she's an Ottawa soprano singer and she's had this program for, I think this was our 10th year or 9th year for her. And she had invited me to come and do a program and um, initially it was supposed to be cello. And then I thought, well, what would really be something that um, is, is dear to my heart? And it is to combine everything together. Um, this year I had a cellist, actually two, two of the students were actually cellists, but they were more creative um, beings and we did creativity, spontaneous music making, which is what I've now come into, which um, like, cause I, I, when I play my music, I improvise into the creations that I create. Um, it's highly spontaneous and I love creating spontaneous music. And I have a duo called Marvilia, which is a piano and cello duo and we spontaneously create. And so I think my whole journey has led me to a moment where I can actually um, 
share in how I create the creative process, where my music comes from, and to help um, other students figure out where their creative process is and how they find their music, because each person is very individual in that creative process. So I was there for two weeks and um, yeah, uh, spontaneous music making is very transformational, it's very freeing. So when we did it in a group and we did it in a larger ensemble with, the with some singers and flute players and my students, it just, you know, it, it ended up being like ecstatic music making. The music just like filled the church. People were just very free. Um, artists who typically are not very free, when they get a taste of this freedom, uh, this musical freedom, and you know, I feel like I can kind of embody that and I can share that. And so it becomes part of the, part of how I teach, uh, but also how I live my life. So it was an amazing two weeks, and uh, hopefully every year I'm going to be doing that. Wonderful. I heard a couple of clips that you posted on Instagram, a really beautiful group. Yeah, thank you. I didn't know about your duo. Who's the pianist in that? So um, I met a pianist here in Toronto, because I'm actually in Toronto right now, um, Bill Gilliam, and he a, a, has jazz sensibilities, but he's, um, uh, he's been an improviser for many years and living in the atonal world. And we just got together to just randomly play. And um, the very first time we played, it was a few years back, but just recently, um, right after COVID, um, we went into the studio and we just played music. We put the microphones on and we play. And we did two sessions like that. And lo and behold, we have a CD coming out in October. Um, the stuff just sounds like... Um, like this kind of very futuristic cello sonata type stuff with prepared piano. Um, I use different sound effects. I use like a milk frother. So you get these kind of like cool, weird sounds coming out. And, and we just found that the music is uh, kind of, uh, it's going to go through the atmosphere. So it kind of goes up into, into space. And we've been like just actually mixing over the last two days. So that kind of music, it just, um, I just found that being able to be that, again, that free in the moment. And uh, a few months ago, I saw um, Bill had, well, actually it was last year, Bill had played a concert with Christine Duncan, and she's a vocal um, free goddess who sings and does the choir um, here in Toronto, which is all improvised. And I sat there and I go, if I can do that, then I've achieved something. Like, I really, you know, felt like I could, you know, that, the courage it takes. So, um, so I did it. We did a live stream YouTube <laughs> live stream concert and it was it was incredible. This is a short clip from Gravitational March with the improvisational duo Marbilia with pianist Bill Gilliam. contrast that with back you know when your musical education started actually I think it's interesting you started in school with the cello right 
Yes, yes. It was a music school program in Toronto. Um, I grew up in Etobicoke, and the Bloorling Middle School, which is actually not far from where I am right now, had a grade six, seven, eight strings program. Actually, full orchestra. We actually played in a full orchestra in those years. So I saw the cello from across the room when I went in, and. Uh, they played a concert and I said, that's what I want to play. I'd never really heard the cello on its own, but I saw the girl playing it and I said, that has to be me. And um, literally from that moment, it was, um, you know, the cello chose me, you know, in return. Mm -hmm. So, And for someone with your um, very advanced, uh, I don't know how you want to put this. I, I would say for most people who attain a professional level of playing, they start younger in general. Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, not necessarily all the time. I think um, I played piano when I was younger, mm -hmm. so definitely I had a musical background. I wasn't very good at the piano, um, but and I found it really hard to do, all, you know, to, to read that many notes mm -hmm. at one time. I think it stopped my music making. And then when I found the cello, it was like one single line and I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this. And, and it just spoke to my to my heart and my soul. And, and it was kind of um, once I found it, it was it was just like literally that vertical curve. You know, mm -hmm. um, I had my first private lessons when I was 13 and then I entered into the Toko School of the Arts the following year. I did three years there. Um, I officially did not graduate high school. I didn't have enough credits, but I got into university when I was 16, um, UFT performance. Mm -hmm. So I did my four years there. And um, yeah, it was just like fully immersed, fully into playing uh, you know, orchestral music, chamber music, excelling on the instrument, just getting better. Um, a lot of the time, because I did start late, I felt like I never really owned my talents. It almost felt like, oh my gosh, I can do this, and I didn't know how I was doing it, really. It felt just almost like um, a little bit surreal. You know, it's, it's, you know, I think when you start younger, you do have a bit of a kind of a confidence that might be embedded into the, the way you see yourself and your instrument. And for me, it was always like, oh my gosh, I really had to warm up. I really had to like spend, you know, a good solid hour of um, fouillard exercises to feel like I was in control of my instrument. Now that's not unusual, but it almost felt like I needed that even like psychologically, you know, to, to feel like I was um, uh, able to actually play. And then sometimes I would play and, you know, it was, took many, many years before I could really feel like I could own my capability and capacity. It was just stuff that just kind of I did and I didn't, you know, I wasn't able to be confident about how I produced it. Mm -hmm. So I think that that speaks a lot. Um, and I did always think back then, oh, I wish I'd started younger because then I'd be so comfortable like all those other cellists, you know, and I was always uncomfortable, you know, I mean, it didn't look like it, but it was always not, not fully comfortable, not fully, um, wasn't fully mine in a way hmm. and that came way later like you know my 30s when I was teaching you know and teaching more and and I think it maybe it came where I really owned that I could do it it was when I when I had my children and I could not warm up anymore and I couldn't do that hour of practice in and I was like you know what you're warmed up now you have to do it now and you forced your body to be there for you you forced your hands to say I can do this I'm relaxed I'm warmed up I've done this so many times I can do this you know so so that took a long time for me as that you know as a 
as a cellist and as a person, I think that, you know, there were people that were kind of in my, you know, supporting me, like my cello teacher, Daniel Dome was amazing, but I still never felt like, you know, and then funny enough, you know, in, then I kind of, after I quit my job in the NAC and I started composing, I put myself back down to the bottom of this learning curve again. So, and that's okay. And I feel like I'm somewhere now just kind of, again, the learning curve and getting better as a composer, a producer, understanding how to use the tools, you know, it's like, again, starting from zero, but that climb again. And again, it took me quite a long time to own that process. And even now it's a little still, you know, as a creator, you know, any moment, like, this may suck when you start opening your program and there's nothing there. So that's how we start, you know, that's how you start. You just have to have faith that it's the process is going to be there for you. Um, Blessing of Awakening is a piece of music. Well, I wrote an album, Music for Healing. And this was just um, a few years ago um, during COVID when my sister actually um, almost died from COVID. She was in the hospital and she went on the... Um, on a ventilator just a few days after going in and we thought we would lose her it was one of the severest cases they had seen and uh, and I, I write music from my life and I write music that happens to me when I kind of assimilate and accumulate all kinds of energy from all over the place and and I get that from people from things that are happening in the world um, it could be news, it could be, and it can be something extremely personal, which are the people that affect me the closest and are closest to me. Um, and, and I think the One Piece Blessing of Awakening was written about four or five days before they actually brought her out of the coma. And for me, that was, you know, people were saying, oh, thoughts, and, you know, to pray and all of that. For me, music is a form of prayer. It's a music, it's a form of like um, asking for, you know, what I really truly want as the outcome and then I put it into my music and then I give it to the world so the world then feels what I want it to feel and I think Blessing of Awakening it was it's so br brilliant it's so bright in, in that moment it was um, probably the darkest moment so I think I really needed to feel that energy I needed to feel that positive that hope and really to kind of channel that that she will be okay and everything's and, and I kind of sent that out into the world so five days later she did come out of the coma took her a long time to get back um, you know she had to relearn to walk everything everything because it was uh, she was under for two weeks and it really did damage to her system so she's okay now but still she has the effects she's it's 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 been hard on her okay yeah, I mean, Blessing of Awakening, I remember when I first heard it, when you were posting on social media about your sister, and it was so heart-wrenching. And then I've listened to it many times since then. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece of music. So uh, as we're about to play this, people who don't know your music should realize it's just you playing the cello, many different layers. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. So I'm multi-track. So basically, I just go in and I, um, my music's either created from a melody or from a chord structure. Um, I don't write that much down and pretty much the magic is done in the production of it. So as I'm playing, I create the performances of it. So you know, you're always trying to capture that performance, right? So, so every line that you play is like, 
the performance and then slowly I layer it out until I can get the whole composition going and and then if I'm thinking about textures how much texture how much build do I want how much um, emotion is gonna like sweep over in the moments that I want um, and I get it's like my own like playing field I get to do what I want and it's very very empowering to be in that seat in that creative seat in that moment and yeah, and it's all cellos. I am able to, I use Cubase as my program, so I am able to manipulate some of the instruments. So in some of more, my more crazy stuff, I may put some effects on the actual cello lines. So, um, and then um, I am known to use percussion instruments, what I have. So sometimes it's more the kitchen percussion. I, I do like chopsticks on my cello, so I've got that. I get like, um, you know, the, like a milk frother kind of effect. Anything that I can use, you just kind of like try to create as many things from the palette that I have. So, so yes, but mostly you will hear what everything you hear is all done by one person, by me. So, and I can create be the orchestra. Here's Lessing of Awakening.
like the story of how my music is created and and I um, when I first quit the orchestra and I started writing music and um, I had you know, one of my relationships had ended and I decided I asked my my mom can I come to Toronto because this is where I'm from and I was in Ottawa and I drove back and forth for about five years <laughs> weekly and every week I would write something new and it would take me three or four days to write and then I would come back to Ottawa and I would teach my students and then I would drive back create something new you know on the way back I would listen and listen because something when it's newly formed it kind of like takes over your whole system and you can't believe that nothing was there yesterday and today all of a sudden there's this music and a lot of the time the music is stuff that um, it's the environment that I need to live in. So sometimes it's cathartic and I have to get lots of energy out and I need that like that aggressive like so I really go for it. And other times when I'm feeling really either low, I want the opposite. I want to feel like enlightened. I want to feel this beautiful. I want to float on a beautiful um on these beautiful melodies or these beautiful waves. And so I create that. Mm -hmm. So so I guess you you know when you lead a feel like it's like living a creative life you kind of are creating the next thing that you want to see for yourself and in the world so I think um, probably there's a lot of angst in me um, probably a lot of um, not probably but a lot of dis-ease and therefore I have to create from that place well thanks so much for sharing that hi just a quick break from the episode I'm an independent podcaster and I really do need my listeners' help. Please consider buying me a coffee. The link to my Kofi page is in the description. Every dollar helps me cover the costs of this huge project. Thanks so much. So if we could just circle back, Margaret, I think it's interesting for people. I mean, I think you're a type of prodigy and I've always felt with your playing that Margaret, you, you may feel differently as yourself, but I've always thought Margaret just didn't make any of the mistakes the rest of us made. She didn't develop the tension problems or any of this. She just did it all right. But you're making eyes at me, so perhaps that's not the case. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I think I was called Miss Perfect at the NEC because, uh, you know, my audition was just like so perfect. And, you know, and I think um, that kind of... Um, I've always been a little bit paralyzed by perfection. If things were not perfect, I wouldn't want it to go forward, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think I would never, um, uh, I would I would rarely advertise myself, oh, come to my concert or do this, because I just felt like I didn't know if it was going to be perfect enough. So, so I think that that was always a, a big issue for me, is that kind of idea of striving for perfection. Mm -hmm. And when I quit the NAC and I was I was doing it like I realized well I just transferred it into, into my music production you know it's just it never went away so it's kind of that that feeling but um, when I was at U of T in my very first year I actually had tendonitis in my first year and it was uh, it was just a very different it was a difficult time um, it, I think between the age of 12 13 14 15 and I tendonitis when I was 16 the learning curve was too fast. Mm -hmm. I think my body couldn't really adjust to that. And um, it, and when I was 16, I was playing Schumann Concerto and Popper Etudes. And I remember exactly when I got 
Um, and in my first year, um, they put me principal cello, which, you know, in this day, I kind of still feel like I wish they had just left, let, put me at the back. It doesn't matter how good I played. I wasn't ready. I wasn't psychologically ready uh, to be under that pressure in, in, because I just barely felt I had the capacity, you know, to do this. I was building it, but I didn't feel like in charge of it. So I think that I had to do with it too, that kind of stress behind it. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so having tendonitis and then then so I in my first year so I did half my year then I had tendonitis for about a year and I I slowly went you know did 10 minutes of practice 15 minutes of practice I even I even quit performance and went into music education but then when I tried to make a sound on a trumpet and I couldn't I said I can't do this <laughs> so there's a place I said I can't do this so I, I decided I'll go back into performance I'll just figure out a way. So, you know, tons of physio, tons of just trying to get myself slowly back, how to, how to, um, I think it was, um, yeah, everybody's body's different. So some people's bodies can't take that as much tension, you know, and the stress plus the tension, I remember it was popper nine, which is a double stop exercise. And that's when that, this hand went. And then I remember an orchestra, we were going dun 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 it was check five. And I literally felt the other side. So it's usually when you get injured, it's sympathetic. So that was my first year. And um, I slowly climbed back out of that. And But again, it was hard won, 20 minutes a day of practice. And then I realized as I was getting, as I came back into it, I couldn't practice as much, so I became way more efficient. So that was the next step is like, how do I efficiently practice when I don't have as much arms to do it with? Um, and then in my final year, I got into Curtis and I went to Curtis. Um, but every time though, I felt like um, I did have to do some exercise or some, you know, physio or I literally had to sometimes take a break, you know, and then my body needed breaks. And, and so I think that was, and that was constant throughout my whole orchestral journey as well. So I'd find myself home on the floor resting and trying to get my arms, which may have felt a little bit funky. So I've always been cautious with my arms since that time. <laughs> so for a lot of listeners won't actually know what Curtis is and how important it is that you managed to get in. So it's, pay every, it's a very prestigious institution. Do you want to speak to the, the institution and what that meant to be able to go there for you? Yes. Well... Going to Curtis technically is considered one of the best music schools in the world. Um, everybody that goes there gets in on full scholarship. And I just went and auditioned. And um, I also had auditioned at Juilliard and um, I got in. And um, it was, um, I, I think most of my formative cello um, pedagogy came from and my playing came from Daniel Dome who was my teacher at U of T and at Curtis I did two years and I studied with David Sawyer um, I wish I'd been doing more quartets so then I would have gotten more out of his um, his instruction but I was kind of gearing towards okay I want to do auditions and so so I kind of went that route but playing in the orchestra there was was phenomenal we had Simon Rattle come in um, I mean uh, Yuri Tamirkanov was came. You know, we had some incredible. Andre Previn came. So, so I got a, a really, really great um, feeling for the orchestra. And and after I graduated from Curtis, I got my first job in the Vancouver Symphony. And I've been a, I was a symphonic musician most of my life. And then the NAC came right after that. So, um, 
So I think I, I absolutely adored orchestral music and my experience at Curtis was, um, yeah, I think one of the biggest things it taught me is that everybody at Curtis, they were kind of fearless. They were like, whatever music was thrown our way, it was like, okay. It was, it was like, there was not this, and I remember at U of T, and we said, oh, this is hard, or this is difficult, or this is, you know, everybody had that kind of, uh, a little bit of attitude. And at Curtis, it was like, there was nothing that was too impossible. So I think that that was kind of something that you get in the atmosphere, and people just played. So I played chamber music with Hilary Hahn. We played quartets, and um, I had coachings with Felix Gallimir, Karen Tuttle, who is amazing, who I saw again at the NEC. Um, Gary Grafman, um, who was the, um, the head of Curtis, he came to the NAC and we played together music for the Sunday afternoon concerts at the gallery. And I remember playing Korngold's piano quartet for left hand. And that was momentous for me because, you know, um, it's just everything coming together. It's actually one of my favorite pieces as well. And Korngold is actually one of my musical influences. So I, I remember those types of moments where people are connecting from my past into the future. Mm -hmm. But Curtis was pretty and pretty amazing. And when you started composing, it's when you had your children and you started writing for them. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I it was just um, my kids were really little, and they said, "Mom, play, play, you know, Twinkle, and play Twinkle again." And after a while, I was just like, "I'm getting tired of playing just the regular Twinkle." So, so I kind of did an arpeggiation of Twinkle. It was really, really sweet. And um, and then I realized somehow that that slowly I could I started writing. I was, things were coming out at that point, and they were they were just like little pieces. But I have to say. Um, one of the things that happened in my life at that point when my kids were really young is it was well, a traumatic experience really so um so I had a traumatic you know breakup and um and things were really really hard and I was in the NAC at that time and my kids um I kind of had to give up everything I gave up everything to be able to just keep my music going and my career and um yeah, I think the individual I was with was just not stable, and that created a really, um, a really difficult situation. Um, and I don't know how I managed, but but I think that in that moment, that was the moment where I felt like, okay, if I've given up everything, um, then I need to create something out of nothing. And that was that went through my mind at that moment where I had these like really depressions where it was really dark and and it was after that where I started trying things and things started coming out and so so the first CD is called the cello for Chelsea and it's actually um, a CD where uh, about a girl named um, Chelsea who finds a cello in the school and his name's Chester and and the, the story mimics like my past you know she but you know and she finds her voice and uh, and I and I told that story for I did I was part of mask for a while which is a, an organization that um, that's in schools and communities so I, I would tell that story and um, and then the second one was um, about this spirits living in the music, and it's called Zara the Magini. And so that one had, you know, more music started coming out. And I was like, oh my 
gosh, this is like, and in the middle, there's a piece called Enchantment, and that was the best music I've created so far, and that was the voice that the little girl had heard in her head, and so she wanted to conduct an orchestra so that she could um, bring back the spirits of her loved ones, so, you know, so I started to, started creating, I'm sure it was fulfilling a need within me, you know, these stories and things that I needed to express, um, but the music started coming out that way, and then it was only when I had was able to. I took a year sabbatical in 2012, and I quit the NAC the year after, where I got my first DAW, so my first system, and I had Cubase on there, and I was able to take these children's stories, like pieces, and make them into like an ad album, like of just regular music that could be. And I used some synthesizers on there, and so it tra I transformed my music, and then there was just more so it just kept, kept going so then the next one you're so enchanting enchanting rising and then it's just like the music just kept coming out and now that's all i do it's like it's almost like a reversal a complete reversal before i was more you know always like uh you know my practicing and getting you know uh, excelling trying to get the music trying to perfect you know and interpret music and then I think that moment in my life, you know, it was, it was extremely difficult for me. Uh, it just was the exchange. It just changed it over. Now, now you don't have to play music. You, you have to create your music. And so, so that, which I think is kind of unusual because I didn't hear any music before that. There was no music in me before that. And now there's only music and there's too much music and I can't get it out in time. So it just feels like something happened there. And that to me is still still and will always be you know um a bit of unknown a little bit of mystical magical whatever you want to call it um that has happened so but one thing that was constant is your teaching especially through an organization called orchestra yes yes i think that that because i started in a music program in a school and I know that nothing would be possible for me if it wasn't for that specific thing. Um, I, I taught always, I always had students. And then um, in 2007, I had connected with Tina Fideski and Gary McMillan, who owned the Leading Note shop in Ottawa. It was a sheet music store, but kind of like a community hub. And they had been exposed to El Sistema already, and there was a DVD called Tokar y Luchar, which is to play and fight. And I borrowed that DVD from them, and I said, we have to do something. So for me, that was like, it's a, it's a huge passion of mine, is to have, um, to be able to give this opportunity to other kids, and to see that, you know, kids are thriving, and that we have thriving, interesting communities, which are, like literally my ideal, like an ideal community that is gives back to each other where there's mentorship and where there's acceptance and music is at the heart of it and music is the connector. So it's a social program through music, but music is what the language we all share. And because it's an international language, it transcends all boundaries, then you know we're able to do that in orchestra. So this not-for-profit, we're... Um, it's almost 15 years. Oh my gosh, my math is so terrible, but um, it's going strong and I conduct in the concerts. I still go back. I'm in Ottawa every two weeks. So I go and I work with the kids in both hubs, in Vanier and in at the Bronson Center, Centertown. And then um, I conduct in the concerts and I do whatever I need 
whatever they need me to do. So I share my passion. Uh, we do some improv within the big groups as well. So I get the kids doing improvisation. Um, and it's it's been amazing. It's been a, uh, like a trend. A lot of the students have done extremely well and they come back and they mentor. We call them old kidstra. But they come and play in concerts or they come and they teach with our students or they try to have some kind of um, connection to our kidstra. So that's been unbelievable and Tina's um, incredible at you know leading that um, me I come in and out artistically I I've, you know the leading notes I've um, I helped to create at the beginning and I think a lot of my heart is always there and when I make that music with the kids it is really the kind of music where I feel most comfortable mm -hmm. so and when you're working in a large group doing improvisation you use certain um, parameters Yes, so I have to add in another key person in my life, um, which is the is Alice Kanak, and she is the she's in Rochester, and she has developed something called creativity ability development, and now she has a method of teaching called playing from the heart, which is like a beginner method, a starting method where kids are learning the basics of violin. She's done a violin, cello, I believe viola already. They're starting the basics, but they're doing extended techniques and they're playing along with tracks and being different animals. And they're actually, um, it's a creative approach to uh, learning the instrument. And it's very freeing and it's very, it takes the kids, it captivates the children in a different way. And so, um, I was exposed to the CAD method um, about, it's been at least 10 years now, a little bit more than 10 years. And Dr. Sarah Smolin, who is also a cellist, but she, she teaches the Suzuki method in Ithaca, but she also does the CAD. Um, she came to Guelph and it was a Suzuki um, retreat thing. It was Suzuki um, week. And I, I saw it firsthand, I participated in it. And it was so, again, so freeing. Um, we were accompanying um, a movie soundtrack and the kids were all exploring and it was all very, it's all very open. And of course the main rule is that there's no such thing as a mistake. So imagine like you're being told that, even at my age, <laughs> you're just like, yay, there's no such thing as a mistake. And the kids thrive on that, you know, they're just being, being free and then the music has starts to have a color and it's your own color it's coming straight from you and so it's that that really um, that really captivates it captivates me but I think the children are captivated by it so when I introduce that now into orchid and I do it with my students we just sit there and we just play and we just create music um, and in orchid we also in a larger group um, I found the easiest way to do that is by follow the leader. So if they follow a rhythm, but they can pick their own notes within a scale or within just a few notes, even open strings, then you can actually get all the different sections playing together, really listening and fitting in, but they're actually improvising rhythms you know so and I've done it where the students now lead each section and the student comes up with a rhythm that fits into the other rhythm but each student in the orchestra is able to pick their own notes so then you're picking and choosing which notes will fit in what kind of things you want so there's a lot of choice involved in it and I think our brains are wired a little bit differently when we're constantly choosing and then this really dovetails into how I actually teach because 
I think we pick and choose how we phrase, how we make little phrases. How do is this phrase a inner phrase? Is it an outer phrase? Where am I going with the phrase? And you're constantly picking and choosing. So the creative approach to to performing is also very much intertwined with being a, being creative in an improv fashion. So I think that that creates a, a little bit more of a individual. Um, take on your interpretation already at right from the get-go and I think I've always been one of those people kind of sitting on the fence in interpretation when I was younger even like I didn't I said well it could go this way or it could go that way which way do I want to play and it was very hard for me to decide but now when I play I just know that in the moment I need to decide which way I want it to go you know and whether I want it to bloom and take a little more time I can decide differently each time and that's kind of the cool thing and I think that that creative approach allows you to be more creative in your performing as well. On that note, you said we might be able to share another track. Do you want to introduce some other music that we'll be sharing as part of this episode? So I also have um, a duo that we produce music for film and TV. So I've been actually very lucky to have a few albums on on a label called Hard Music Design and it's part of the APM catalog. So some of my music has found itself on WWE, wrestling, and um, Top Gear, and you can, you can hear some of my music on TV and in film things. Um, and this was done with a fellow named Craig McConnell here in Toronto as well. And we blended electronic music with my cellos and it created this um, this thing which we call Rage Angel. So I was able to get a lot of my aggressive, you know, kind of, it's almost a little, there's a little bit of techno, there's a little bit of EDM in it, there's a little bit of um, um, beats and, and it's, uh, and we actually scored one film together. So some of the music that you would find also, um, which through the licensing catalogs are, are film cinematic in flavor. Um, it was a psychological thriller. So we've got like, you know, cut the body and all these kind of gory things, but creeping dread. Um, there's another um, album called Hard and Heavenly Cello. So, so there's some beautiful tracks on there which are, are available for, for licensing. And I do find that it's not a lot, but I do find some back end, which is my SoCan royalties. And I do see where my stuff is being placed. But because it's usually about a, a six to nine months out from when it was placed, it's hard for me to go back and like really listen to where it was placed. But um, so, so one of the pieces is called um, Raging Red. The original piece was um, was describing um, bombings that had happened in Turkey. So um, I, I called it raging red carnations, and it's just that you know you just needed to get that angst out. So the actual, and then we transformed it into a rage angel track, um, and it just has this. Uh, this energy to it. I like writing really fast. I know I have some kind of musical ADHD kind of thing because most of my music has like the pacing is very fast. Um, it's it's harder for me to write slower music because I have to slow myself down and I feel like I'm always racing through space and time and and like there's always an energetic in there. So Raging Red is a com combination of, um, of Craig McConnell's um, artistry and genius and my cellos. This is an excerpt from Raging Red by Rage Angel with Craig McConnell. 
you. And you produced a duo album with Donna Brown. Yes. A singer. Yes. So I was just looking about six years ago, I got a grant from the Canada Council. That's the last time I got a Canada Council grant. I was just rejected yesterday again. I need to figure out why mm. and how to write better grants because um, because I have a rock opera that I want to finish. I have the first act, but I don't have the second act done, and I want to be able to produce that, like just to get it going. And my co-writer for that is in Argentina. So I have this huge idea, and we have the storyline and everything, so I'm gonna try to keep do a better job at getting a, a grant to help support something like that. That would take me, yeah, take us months to do, but we're still forging ahead. Um, and I got a grant, uh, initial grant to write some arias for Donna Brown to sing. And Donna's incredible. And it started there. And then just recently, I received an Ontario Arts Council grant to produce the CD. And so, which I am very grateful for. And I also produced it on the Canadian Music Center, Center Discs label. So I became a, Center, a Canadian Music Center associate composer um, a few years ago, which for me was huge. So um, I still like when I see Margaret Maria composer, I'm like, it catches me a little bit, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. That's me, you know, so. And so we um, did a, a have a, a beautiful disc called Between Worlds, where it's Donna Brown singing and it's my cellos in the background. And it's Donna Brown wrote all the poetry and her poetry and my music, they just kind of, they, they existed together. So some of the tracks, some of the music existed and she wrote the poetry to the music and I then placed her voice inside the music. Um, and some of the arias, uh, some of the songs, not really arias, songs, I actually just wrote the music for and created the songs and we want to make another CD so we're, we're really excited about that but that was a beautiful beautiful partnership and then I did orchestrate that for full orchestra so that was done in Ottawa right before COVID um, with the Ottawa Chamber Orchestra Donnie Deacon conducted and Donna sang so I did have my first premiere on the world's on a stage and um, and then most recently I was also um, Oh, and, and there's going to be that. I have to now um, reorchestrate those songs for string quartet because the Molinari String Quartet is going to be performing them in Montreal with Donna in 2025. So, yeah, I, I'd read about your rock opera and heard a little bit. So this guy, um, Julian Garcia, what is it, Reich? How, how does he pronounce it? Reich, Reich, yeah, yeah. So you met him online? Yes. So um, at one point, it's interesting because SoundCloud brought me a lot, a lot of connections. And that was when they they were able to still do groups. I'm, I'm, I have like mixed, mixed feelings about all of the apps that are out there and how our music is being um, consumed. And, um, and before in SoundCloud, I was able to share on groups, like in different groups. And I found that I accumulated a lot of friends, but a lot of musicians also listen to my stuff. So actually I have another album of cinematic steampunk, which I did with a fellow composer in LA. And that's also in a music uh, library, A-list trailer music. So, and I did that with John Massari. He heard my music and he said, we should do something together. And then we created an album together. So it was the same thing with Julian. He heard my music and he took it and he, he did a, a, one of the, a, a slice of moon it was called. And he took one of my tracks and he put 
vocals on top of it. So I think my music is very versatile in that way because from where I am, I can create all kinds of different things. So I love the synergy of, of partnership, partnering like that and having a collaborative kind of thing because it just like creates a whole new sound out of what I can make. So um, I was really excited because like I just started hearing this like incredible voice and he's more like a character actor voice um it's growly and but it's very passionate and and then and then slowly we decided well let's let's keep going with that and so we um the majority of the first act is him taking my music and actually just putting vocals vocal lines on top and the story developed that way um and just the other day because we're committed to continue this um I actually took, uh, there's, a finale, there's a finale to the first act he wrote, which is with organ and voice. And he said, oh, there should be cellos in there. But I used that to create the beginning of the actual finale. So I took that, I added some slides, and then I added like the rock part. Because I hear it as a bunch of strings, so like maybe six or seven string instruments, a drum kit there, so it can have the rock as aspect to it. And pretty much that's it. So the, op the rock opera would have like dancing in it. And finally, now I know someone who would want to be able to choreograph that, who's just absolutely incredible. So I'm trying to put all those pieces together. It's, it almost feels like it's impossible, but anything that's impossible is possible. I've discovered you just need to keep following that path. So the rock opera will get done, and I find it's fascinating. It's, it's about, again, the Lady of the Moon having inspiration, and she's like ethereal, and she would be on silks. And the sculptor is, scu is sculpting a sculpture that's going to rise above the city, ushering in a new era. So all of these kind of themes that are, are um, part of me, part of my creating, you know, I'm the sculptor, I'm the Lady of the Moon, and then Maria, who's the wife, who actually eventually finds her voice and raises the sculptor, she's half beautiful and half disfigured, and she needs to come into her voice, finding her voice and empowerment. So I think that that... Um, I'm so excited to keep going. I just need to, you know, dig in and say it's going to get done no matter what, uh, which is the artist's way. It's going to get done no matter what. Yeah, you, you never stop. You never have faith. You always have to have faith in it and no matter what. So that's kind of um, where I'm at. You know, it's music is like the ultimate powerful thing that I could be expressing myself in. And yeah, there's low moments where you think, okay, I didn't get the grant, you know, then, oh my gosh, what are they looking for? It's not good enough. I'm not good enough. You know, it's always there. That's a constant. Um, and also that struggle, because again, all of our music from all creators, all music is free on the internet. I mean, it is free. I mean, everything that you find that people can pay for is also free on YouTube. And the payout for those things, there, there really is, isn't any. There isn't any. Yeah. So, um, so if it's not with the licensing or getting grants, there's no support. So I support myself by teaching. I teach cello and I, I love teachings, which is great. But I definitely support myself through teaching and it's not through my art. That does leave me with a beautiful situation where I can create whatever I want and I'm not beholden to anything or anyone and I could follow my path. But at the same time, that creates another situation, which is, you know, artists are not supported and you are, you know, um, I, I think I have to thank my sister because she supported me a lot. You know, she saved my, 
she saved me many times. So sometimes you get into artistic life pickles and there are people that save you. So music has saved me and my sister saved me a lot. Her her husband, yeah, that I can, you know, there's been a lot of support for me that way. This is From Scars to Infinite Stars. Thank you. 
Well, people can buy your albums on Bandcamp. Yes. I don't think they're all there, though. Like your album with Donna's not there. I'm not sure your children's albums are there. No, they're not, actually. No. So I think they're a little bit hodgepodge. I think on my website, I have some things, too. I have like a Banzuko website, so margaretmariamusic.com. So probably the best way to support any artist is to actually download their albums, right? But even if it's downloaded off of iTunes, it's I still get something as an artist. It's not the same as streaming. Yeah. Streaming is, is like literally nothing for artists, but any kind of download, they're, they're still, it's still because it's downloaded, it, there is mm -hmm. some. Well, I, I often bring this up with so many of my guests, and I think, you know, we need to use the streaming for browsing, and when you find something you love, if you can afford it, try to, to buy it. So I think Bandcamp is a really good platform. People are using it more and more, and you can set your yes. price and sell your physical CDs or whatever as well. But um, if we could circle back to teaching, I was curious if you've, you must have changed the way you teach. I mean, you've changed so much as a musician, right, in, in your approach. Yes, yes. I think um, hmm. I teach a lot through emotions, so I call it teaching through emotions. Um, and definitely I sit down with all my students and we improvise. So that's a big, huge change, which um, didn't exist before at all. And now it's just, and, and, and now they're becoming fearless too. So if, I, if they've done it enough with me, um, we sometimes just um, sit down and I say, okay, let's do random, which means we just, we don't pick a key, we don't do anything. We just start with sound effects and we try to find one another here and there and in the process i usually close my eyes so i give them like complete completely just privacy you know because it's such a kind of personal thing and then and then we just go like the music just goes and so i'll do chord changes or crazy effects and you're literally creating it on the spot you're meeting halfway so i think that that part of my approach is um people the, the students really feel that freedom i think there's a there's that creative um part of them that comes out so i think to be able to hear and respect that child's creation is such a big thing for them they're they're heard you know they're heard and they're listened to and there's no such thing as mistakes so they're not being judged they're just sharing in something that can be very powerful and i do find that and i do mention it to some of the, if if the parent is sitting there or the student is there i said where do you feel that lift off you know in music there's like that lift off comes when you're playing like a huge symphony where you feel the emotion coming and you feel the power of it you know so professionals feel that often because they're hearing like amazing music and they feel this lift off you know but students don't feel that for a long time the music doesn't lift off it doesn't really soar it doesn't capture them and like take them maybe when they're listening to a piece of music you feel it but when you're literally in charge of the music so so I find that when we improvise I can get them to go like literally there's lift off and and you can feel the power of the music you know so so I think that that is one of the biggest differences for me is that I try to show it in our improv how big and how passionate how how powerful the effect of the music can be and then when we actually play the music you're trying to find those moments as well right and so it's easier to explain how you're gonna make this huge crescendo how are you gonna um, 
you know, how much sound you need and what kind of um, phrase you need to get there and what kind of emotion you need to capture. So I think a lot of, there is a kind of a difference in my teaching that way. I think I've always been very uh, responsive to where a child is at. I don't think that has changed um, in my in my approach. I think that that has always kind of been there. Um, I always feel like, okay, where are we and what can I do to bring that out? Now, just with the, with the whole little bit of improvised aspect, it's, it takes on a different, um, different kind of color even, like, okay, where are they at and how can I bring that out? But when we're improvising, it's much easier to bring it out. It's easier to find it. It's easier to find the child. It's easier to find where they are, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And even if I do this with an adult or whoever is in front of me, I can find where they are and then we go together. And that little bit of togetherness is like chamber music at its, like, at its most advanced, you know, where you're really listening and you're really combining and you're respecting and you're moving together. So it's that kind of um, ebb and flow, which is, literally the hallmark of the best chamber music. So I find that um, that teaching kids this way creates, it creates another level of listening, another way of listening. And it also is very, uh, the students are very conscious about really listening to what the next person contributes. So, so it's, uh, I find that whole creativity ability development method has that in it, it's embedded in it. How am I going to listen so I can respond? How can I do that at this, you know, if we're going around in a circle and I'm next or I'm playing in a, th in a little trio and there's somebody's doing a drone and they pass the melody to me. What can I give? What can I contribute? What did they just do? What am I fitting into? And it's this incredible thing, which we talk about in chamber music, like in university, it's like becomes, you know, how are we communicating, you know? But this is done for children, right? This is done at that level where you're listening and you're, everybody's like watching and responding and passing it. So I think that that has changed me a lot that has changed how I teach completely because it's a different way of respecting a child's voice or a person's a human's voice you know that's their music that's their music coming out and how am I going to interact with that music um, because it's very evident because they're giving something of themselves they're very different when you um, when a child plays a phrase of music that is um, something that's already written down and they now have to conform to that and try to interpret that is very different than someone giving a phrase of music that is coming directly from them and being created and rendered in the moment. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is what really keeps me kind of, um, it, it's, it very fascinates me, keeps me very interested. And literally when you are creating and teaching this way, there's not a moment where you want to lose lose anything so you're just always there you know you don't want to you know you just uh, time really flo flies away because you're so focused um, it's so it's a very different approach but I think it's 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 wonderful to be a part of it and it's wonderful to be to witness it and to be kind of enabling it and making it happen for students and for in groups so I like I like doing that. That's kind of part of part of my my life's work. So in your private lessons, do you plan to have that time as part of the lesson, or does it just come up? 
Yeah, I usually plan it. I usually say, do you want to improvise first or last? <laughs> so sometimes students want to get warmed up. Sometimes if I, I sometimes choose, I say, okay, let's improvise first just because I want to get kind of break the ice. I just want to communicate and I just want to be in that world with my student for a little bit before you get down to like, okay, play me a scale or anything like that, right? And even then, once you've improvised in it, okay, play me a scale, play it like a rainbow, like, you know, let's go, you know, so you start doing like visual images to kind of prolong their um, experience of playing very, very musically with different mm -hmm. images and ideas. Um, yes, yeah, so all my music now, I ask them to, for stories, but that's not unusual, like, um, you know, but stories where you can really, um, kind of build, you know, if there's like what's happening in your mind. So so for sure having a visual and uh, having some kind of story because you can actually tell when a child has no story, you know, because the music doesn't go anywhere. So and slowly they realize, oh, if I think this way or I'm adding this in or if I feel this emotion that they're starting to play more musically and the music starts to flow much easier. So for sure, for sure, I didn't do as much of that before, um, but now I do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And were you teaching online before COVID or did that start then? It just started during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I didn't teach online before that. So, so now actually to make my life work, I teach one week in person in Ottawa. Most of my, all my students are in Ottawa and I do one week online. Um, and when I'm online, I do more like scales and things where I can do corrective work where it's a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, or listen to a whole piece and, and kind of be able to see where they're at. Um, and then when I hear them in person, I do more improvising and get to, you know, hear their sound. It is very hard to hear the sound um, and what the concept of the sound is over, over just Zoom, like, or over the internet, yeah? Um, sometimes it sounds like they have a huge sound, but then you hear them in person, and that huge sound is not huge at all. <laughs> it was just a good mic placed. So, so it's nice to have the both of the worlds together and to be able to bring that together. So, so yeah, so I'm a hybrid cello teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that because I was teaching exclusively online during the height of the pandemic. And when I finally heard some of these people in person, it was mostly a, a question of volume, actually. Yeah, they didn't have the depth of tone. So we worked a lot on that once we got in person. Right. Yeah. So this way I can ensure that the tone is where it needs to be yeah. so that, I, that I, I'm not disillusioned, you know, just by what I'm hearing over the internet. Yeah. So Margaret, if you could just speak to her heart on a platter. So this one actually is going to be, um, is something I wrote at the beginning of t this year, 2023. My life has kind of taken me full circle to to a place where I feel like, you know, my kids are grown up now. Um, I just have a new puppy. <laughs> um, and I feel like I now want to live my life for my music, where I kind of am at the center. Uh, in the past, I kind of felt like I need to fit into other places and into other people's lives. And, and I feel now that um, I'm kind of like um, the center of my life stays and I, I'm kind of like in the center and people can come in and out and and I can just be extremely giving, uh, be very open like I am, that's my personality, is to be giving, to, to be love, I have, you know, to really feel like I can connect with people and get the emotional kind of connection I need with people without feeling like I need to 
be somewhere else other than within my center. Sometimes I really need to self-soothe a lot because of the, you know, the, the state of the world, where my kids are, what's happening all around me. And I feel like I can do that in my own space now, uh, where I could not do that before I was searching for it outside of me. So her heart on a platter is, I think, realizing that I give everything and I show myself and I show what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. Um, and I give a lot of love without asking for anything in return because you're not supposed to, but it's that like love liberates if you give, like you just give everything and in every moment you just give and you are giving and you are loving so you can live that kind of life. And I think that her heart on a platter literally just, um, when you hear it, it's just that's all of me on a platter, fully exposed. Those are my thoughts, my feelings, my my heart. Um, and I guess I guess just to show that, you know, you can be open and and be as open as I want to be in, in life. And and that's the place where my music speaks from. So that's what you hear. This is Her Heart on a Platter.
People can buy some of your sheet music on your website. Yes, yes, I have a few things there. I'm supposed to put up some more scores. Um, I have some um, some six cello um, ensemble parts, um, pieces, uh, a five cello part, Exquisite Night is there, that can be played for cello ensemble. Um, so yeah, I'm slowly, you can just take a look on my website, there's, this, uh, there's a store and there's the sheet music part there. So I'm slowly adding things, but those can be found on my website, yes. And I'm hoping to have Between Worlds, this orchestral score at the Canadian Music Centre Library soon as well, so that other orchestras can play it and either Donna can sing it or another um, soprano can sing my pieces too. So that's in the works as well. Excellent, that's really good to hear. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about imagery and so on. You, you have a, a level of synesthesia, I believe? Or yes. Um, I think uh, what happens is I, I take on the colors of other people very easily. I think um, it's kind of an empathic type of thing. Um, I could take a moment or a poem um, I tend to become other people's lives. It's very easy for me to do that. It's kind of like a, um, like a transference. And so I can create my own stories out of that. And I feel like I feel other people's emotions. So um, being very emotive, I mean, it's great for music because that's what we're doing. We're creating emotions. And so um, I kind of take emotions on. And I think that that's the hardest part of writing for me is that I take on all sorts of stuff that it may not be me and that's that's okay but I could take that energy and then transform it into music so but that process in itself has a high energy kind is a high energy type of process because you have to um, sit there and it has to kind of yeah so for me I guess that that would be the hardest part and the most um, it's kind of painful too sometimes depends on what you're trying to describe you know mm -hmm. um, there's, um, there's a track actually that I'm going to share too, it's called Shame on an Angel, and um, I wrote that um, when I felt really, really, really bad inside, you know, and so many things had come together to create that. I lost touch with my artist friend, Angel Muriel, who, um, who we created these incredible videos together, and he was like my divine twin, and he's, uh, he passed away actually in October. Um, but he was an energy that stayed within me for a long time because we were like like twins like he he was this master surrealist painter and he he said I until I came along his creatures because he's got creature like these little surrealist creatures had no voice and he goes now he paints my music and and my music is his painting and we had this incredible bond and then we lost touch over COVID and I couldn't find him. Mm. And then when I tried finding him, his website went down. It was quite like dramatic, but traumatic for me. It's like, like I lost, I lost him. I can't find him. And, um, and I just, it, eventually he was found. I have a, a friend who was a friend, um, a Russian art, um, 
represent, he represents Russian artists and he's in Ireland and we connected together. We tried to find this mystery of where did Angel go? Where is he? And we found him in a restaurant and in, in, he, he had opened a restaurant, but I'm not sure whether, uh, and from that point when I did my last video, oh, I had not been in contact with him. So um, maybe something had happened to him too that he couldn't paint or something because everybody else talked on his behalf, but I knew he was still alive until October of last year. Mm. Um, anyway, so so all of these come and it hits me, you know, I've lost my friend. I've, I've you know, I've created another situation where I felt like I was like this, uh, you know, caught in a chicken coop and, and I was, you know, I'd just fallen out of the sky like this. The, um, so shame on an angel is just, is you hear this creature, this mysterious, this mystical, it's like an angel with huge wings. Um, and, and the, who lands in a chicken coop and it's based on a story, um, a short story, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, could that be the name? I hope that's the name. And, and I, I read the story and I felt like the reason this angel dropped down is because of, of shame. The something shameful happened and had to regrow its wings. And, and I created the sound of this angel coming, crashing into the chicken coop. And then, and then the music just goes from there. And it's kind of, uh, um, my, my musical heroes are um, Prokofiev and Shostakovich. They're like my, my compositional grandfathers I call them great grandfathers I think they're they're somewhere in me and with you know always somewhere you know in my kind of vicinity in my brain and around me and sometimes I kind of like to say okay what would they think of that and you know sometimes I just like like laugh with glee I say oh my gosh I wish they could you know I wonder what they would say when they heard that you know so in, in that one I actually add percussion in the end because I love Prokofiev's mechanical uh, you know endings that have machines in it so I added that in it um, and it just it's it's just a wild ride to the end this is shame on an angel
Life does its does its thing inside me, and my answer I answer it in music. And so, so yeah. And when it's happening, when I'm actually writing, I, like I mean, it's the most empowering, most incredible feeling. But you can also feel it going through you, through you, and you're being like wrung out, <laughs> like wrung out, like a like a rag. And then you just like you know, then you take a break and do it again. And next, I have all the music from last year, it's coming out, it's called Goddess of Edges, and it's about living in this state, in between things. Um, living where you're not really w here, but you're not really there. You're not of this world, but you're not there yet either. And you live between things, and you're trying to describe the world between. And so I find myself constantly in that state of being, and that's where I find my music. So 
it's it's a kind of unstable place um, and it's very free you have to be extremely free and and just um, letting go a lot of letting go a lot of letting go of things so you can find new music so I think that state of being is where I live um, not an easy place to be but it's where the music comes from so I so I just continue well uh, thanks so much for, for telling your story and, and for your beautiful music, Margaret. It's really inspiring. Oh, thank you so much for sharing it and having me um, be able to explain it and share it here. It's it's just, um, oh, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. There's such a fascinating variety to life and music. And this series features wonderful musicians worldwide with in-depth conversations and great music with over 100 episodes to explore. Many episodes feature guests playing music spontaneously as part of the episode or sharing performances and albums. I hope that the inspiration and connection found in a meaningful creative life, the challenges faced, and the stories from such a diversity of artists will draw you into this weekly series with many topics that will resonate with all listeners. Please share your favorite episodes with your friends and do consider supporting this independent podcast. The link is in the description. Have a great week.